Let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is where we are. We will be in verses 16. Actually, we'll only get through verse 16 through verse 21. And um, that's where we are. So John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Kids, you're dismissed for uh, Children's Church. Appropriate age class. If you haven't checked in your children in the kiosk, please do so. And we're in John together. The Gospel according to John, invisible made visible. If you're new here, we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. There are Bibles in the back. If you need one, if you don't have one, it's our gift to you. And we have gone so far, we are in chapter 6. This is the second time we are in chapter 6. And as I said uh, two weeks ago, that we are going to be eating and drinking of its spiritual food for a few weeks. John chapter 6. Very important chapter, and there's a lot to take in. So let me just bring everybody quickly up to speed. Chapter 5, after Jesus healed a man who was an invalid for 38 years, the 36 years, uh, on the Sabbath day, breaking the, the man-made rules of the Sabbath, the religious leaders of that day bumped up their game, and rather than wanting to persecute Jesus, they are now, the Bible tells us, they wanted him dead. I like I know I say that very well. You're wondering why I say dead so well, but they wanted him dead. So rather than apologize and say, listen, uh, I didn't really mean what I said about myself, and he, he bumps up his game, and in chapter 5 we see this testimony and this witness of all the things that he's claiming about himself. He's, Jesus says that the Son of God is, has the same prerogative, exclusive rights as God himself, and they said, you are making yourself out to be equal with God. And they were right. His claim to equality with God, Jesus' claim to equality with God is by his coextensive, his parallel activity with all that the Father does, he does. And that Jesus has the prerogatives and the, the privileges as God to have authority over life. We saw that in chapter 5. To, to have all judgment and then to receive worship. That's Jesus. That's the Son of God that we worship. And chapter 5 ends, interesting enough, with this. Jesus says to the religious leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote the first five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah. He wrote of me. Jesus pointing to the Old Testament, pointing that the Old Testament points to himself. And then he says, how, if you don't believe his writings, 
how will you believe my words? Chapter 5 ends. And then in chapter 6, although not in a chronological order, some time has passed between 5 and 6, but there's great theological connectivity in what John writes. When I say theological connectivity, I'm talking about it's a God thing. John is writing in the inspiration of the Spirit, and he's tying chapter 5 and 6 together for a reason. And look at your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 4. It says that the Passover feast was at hand. That's a big clue, contextual clue for this passage and what God is trying to say. The Passover, the entire deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt to the promised land that was led by Moses is one of the key events, if not the key event, that has taken place, a story that defines their very existence, the rescue that made them God's people. Very important time in the nation of Israel. The Passover is at hand. And then in chapter 6, again, verses 1 through 15, we saw that Jesus, our Savior, as as the Passover was before them or on the horizon, had compassion on a people. They were wonder seekers, the Bible tells us, and Jesus feeds 5,000 men up to 15, maybe 10, 15,000 people with a boy's lunch. We saw that two weeks ago. Two small fish, five barley loaves. Jesus blesses it and feeds 10,000. So much so that there were how many baskets left over? Twelve. More left over than what he started with. Ex nihilo, mean out of nothing, Jesus creates and blesses and feeds. And we learned from that last two weeks ago, we learned from that, that Jesus alone brings life-giving bread with an abundance, leftovers. Then we finished two weeks ago in verses 14 and 15. Again, the time of the Passover, the celebration of the deliverance from freedom looming over them. They recognize that someone else gave them bread from above. Moses, look at verse 14 and 15 of chapter 6. They said to him, you fed us, Moses fed us, you must be the guy Moses is talking about. You're the guy, you're the prophet to come, Deuteronomy 18, that that we should listen to him. Moses told us about you, and we're going to make you our king. The people understood this prophetic person that Moses spoke about. His role was to be simultaneously kingly as well as prophetic. And they're thinking the prophet Moses rescued us and delivered us from the tyranny of Egypt. You're the next guy and you will deliver us from the tyranny and the subjectivity to Rome. And they want to make him king. That's where we pick up the story. Shortly after feeding of the 5,000 men, up to 10 or 15,000 with women and children included, and this failed coronation, we want to make you king. And that's where we pick up in verse 16. Now, we're going to see our text under three very simple, very, very simple headings, okay? Very simple headings. The scene, the scare, and the solution. The scene, the scare, and the solution. That's where we're going. Look at number one, the scene, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Let me just add a little bit for you about this scene. Remember, Jesus and his disciples, right before the feeding of the 5,000, came from the western side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Okay, on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. They were engaged in ministry, if you remember. Jesus and his disciples, he had sent his disciples out to heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaiming the gospel. They're on the western side of the sea, and there's a lot of ministry going on. They needed rest. Also, while on the western side of the sea, Jesus finds out that his cousin, or at least a relative, possibly a cousin, John the Baptist, was beheaded by the king. With that, they start heading east around the sea. Okay, I just want to show you. So they're in this area ministering. And then they start heading, this is west, east toward Bethsaida, right around here. We're going to see there's going to be two Bethsaidas, but I just wanted to give you. Because they're going to cross the sea somewhere around here to this side right here. So it's not like they go right down through the middle. But from around here to around here, that's where the scene's going to take us. So they're on now on the eastern side of the, of the sea trying to get some rest. But, but the scripture teaches us that while they were there and on, while they were going around the sea, large crowds began to follow them. So you can see, he's going from town to town, they're ministering, they're involved in ministry, the crowd is growing, town, every town, the crowd is getting bigger and bigger, and by the time they get to the other side to get some rest in the remote part, which is much more remote, there's large crowds still there. So Jesus and his disciples begin to minister to them as well. That's where the 5,000 comes in. They were feeding even the 5,000. They were ministering to this large crowd that had taken place. You know, that had, that had grown, and they were there together. Now, according to John and John... Uh, um, Six, uh, 16, it was evening, okay? And, but it, 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 the crowd is getting, I want you to see the scene, the crowd is getting larger and larger. They do the feeding of the, the 5,000. There's healing going on, and now it's getting to be nighttime, okay? And verse 15 actually tells us, too, that it was, Jesus, it was time for him to withdraw. He, he needed to go to the mountain. It was time for the disciples of Jesus to finally get some rest. I want you to see that. Fortunately, Matthew and Mark, two of the other gospel narratives, gives us a little more insight. Mark tells us in 646, same story, same incident. Mark adds for us, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. It was time. Sun was going down. It was time. It was time to get the very needed rest that they had gone to that side of the sea to get. Now the word prayer, prosokomai in the Greek, pros means toward. So Jesus went to the mountain to be toward, and it's a directive, it's, it's a direction. He was, he was face to face. There was this conscious outpouring of his soul to the Father, calling upon heaven as he goes into the mountain to pray. After a busy day of ministry. I also want to add, I believe during this time as well, there might have been, I believe there was, the possible temptation that anyone would have, you and I included, after a great, wonderful, week-long, active, successful ministry. And then someone comes and says, let's crown you as king. Jesus felt the need at that moment when they try to you know, grab him to make him king after a full day of ministry to go into the mountains to have this refreshing and renewed face-to-face communion with the Father and to seek his will. Jesus knew that his kingdom would accomplish what it was set out to do, not 
by taking on this crowd and rushing into Rome or, or taking over the nation, beating the enemy, getting into war, but by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Jesus would be crowned with a crown of thorns. He was going to Jerusalem not to wield the sword of justice and bring judgment, but to receive the sword of justice and bear the judgment of our sin. But remember, the Scriptures teach us very clearly that Jesus himself was tempted like we are, in every way, the Bible says, yet without a sin. He was tempted yet without sin. Therefore, I think it is very possible that this enthusiastic but unwelcomed attention from this crowd, let's make him king, look at all he's done, could have been somewhat like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. When Satan comes and tempts him and and says, go up to this mountain, look and see, all this will be yours if you worship me. Jesus says, be gone. Be gone. In other words, let's make you king now. Let's avoid the cross. And Jesus says no. And he flees. He abandons the crowd and went alone to pray. The late Donald Barnhouse, who was the pastor of the 10th Press Church in Philly, said this, if Jesus in his great power and oneness with God could feel the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, how much more you and I need to go to the Father for the strength that fills our weaknesses and the knowledge that fills our ignorance. Prayer brings us into fellowship with God that nothing else can provide. End quote. Verse 16, the evening came. It's time. They went down to the sea. According to Mark, it says that they immediately, that Jesus immediately made his disciples go into the boat. And go, therefore, to the other side of Bethsaida. That's the other Bethsaida. Bethsaida Julius is what they were at. And they were going to the other side. From, from the eastern side, they were going back to the western side. And I want to point stuff like that out to you. That when you read the New Testament, you see, well, they were in a place near Bethsaida, but yet they were going to Bethsaida. You have to know, there, it does not a contradiction. There were two towns. One was Bethsaida Julius that was named after an emperor's daughter, and then one was another city called Bethsaida. So it's not a contradiction. It is, it is just the Bible's way. They knew about the cities in those days. And Mark adds something very, very helpful here, and I don't want to keep going back and forth to the different gospel accounts, but Mark says something very important that we need to see. Mark said that Jesus made them. Jesus made them get into the boat. Very strong Greek word. There's an urgency, there's a compelling, there, there's a pressure to get into the boat. Jesus found it necessary to insist firmly, I'm sure gently but firmly, that the disciples leave at once so he can go back up to the mountain to pray. Why? Why did he deliberately send them out into the sea or into the lake, a large body of water, they call it sea, they call it the lake of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. Why? You can almost see Jesus getting the disciples together and saying, listen, you guys can't stay here. Come on, get in the boat, everybody. Let's go, let's go, get in. Come on, and you can see him actually, come on, guys, and pushing the boat out. You, you gotta go. What was their reluctance? Free food? There was 12 baskets left over. Maybe each one got a basket. Maybe it wasn't food. Maybe, maybe they were so involved in ministry and watching so much what was going on. They were so thrilled at what was going on. They wanted to just stick around and cast out more demons. 
and heal more people. Maybe and more probable, though, I think the reason is, I think the reason is that the desire, this temptation to make Jesus king must have sounded really good to them. We're the apostle, the chosen 12. If he's king now, what does that make us? Lords over the earth, right? Kings and uh, 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 subjects to the king and, and taking over in this physical kingdom where there's power and, and authority right now. Do you know in Jesus' day, whenever there was an insurrection or there was this rebellion, it started in the hills. People would climb into the hills and, and hide and, and gather their forces. And You know, insurrection gives birth to the hills. This is great. Let's get him as king. All the wonders. Did you see the miracles? We can be under his authority. You know how much power we would get? And she's like, you know what? You guys got to get out of here. He knows all men, the Bible says. Like, you got to leave because this is much too much of a good idea for you guys. It's time for you to go. And Jesus off on his own into the mountains to pray. His eyes and his hearts are in heaven. And, he, and he's seeking the Father as the, these disciples are being placed, nudged, compelled on their own into the sea. Verse 17, they go down. They get into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. That little phrase, Jesus had not yet come to them. People still don't exactly know what that means. I, I think what it means, that somewhere that's missing in the narrative, that Jesus either directed his disciples to get into the, to the boat and, and to wait on a part of the shore where he would meet them, or maybe they just assumed he was coming. But either way, we know what happens next. Whether he was going to meet them or not, they go out and a storm comes. Now let's stop and ask this question. Did Jesus just hurdle his guys together, force them gently, but propel them, insisted on them to go into the boat and drive them right into a storm? Did that just happen? I, I think it did. I think so. I think Jesus sent them into the storm. And if you ask John the Apostle, why would Jesus do that? He would answer chapter 20, verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God of the same nature, and believing in him, you may have life in his name. The disciples not only needed to get a better understanding of who Jesus is, they needed to know that he was enough. His presence was all he, they need, his satisfaction, reality of their life is Jesus. You know, it's so easy to love and to worship and to glorify and be satisfied in God when all our physical needs are met. Filling your tummy and feeding your ego, feeding your desires, caring for your earthly pleasures. God does care about your earthly things, but it's short-lived. But seeking final satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment outside of Christ will never quench your soul. They needed to learn that. Notice what this verse indicates. It was dark. Now, dark could just mean the sun went down, right? It's dark out. A lot of times, that's all it means. But in John, his account, darkness takes on a different meaning in many places. Darkness to John, if you look at chapter 1, darkness is contrasted to light. Jesus is the light of the world. We are in darkness. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night to Jesus, describing his spiritual condition. I think John is interplaying here a storm and darkness and trouble, picking up the Old Testament languages in the Psalms about this intense 
personal difficulties and storms. Psalm 42, all your waves and breakers have gone over me. I have come into the deep waters of the floods and they engulf me. Psalm 69.1, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweeps over me. It was dark. Have you ever felt that way? It's dark. The waves are pounding. I am drowning. Overwhelming, crushing sense of feeling like you can't breathe. You know, this is what I think is happening. Jesus knows that the best way to show you, Jesus knows it's the best way to show me, Jesus knows the best ways to show them that we are falsely and temporarily clinging to things that will never satisfy us completely. He he is revealing that our real and true hunger and thirst comes many times through a storm. Storms expose the dark reality that we love to cling to things that will never satisfy. It is a way of revealing our unbelief in the hardness of our hearts when we are drowning. And then Jesus comes. It's dark. Jesus in prayer. The disciples are sent out into the storm. And look at verse 18. We see the scare. The sea becomes rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, now the Sea of Galilee, is that on number 218? Let's go back. Can we put that on the next one for me? Now, the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. Now, because it's so low and there's plains around, especially from the southeastern, the warm wind would blow and contrast uh, the, the, the moisture on the, on, the, on the sea and the cold wind would come across it and it would be very, very turbulent. All of a sudden, the winds would change and the sea it would just be rocking. There'd be winds, there'd be wave. It was very common in that day, right? Even today, from what I understand, the power boats are told many times to, to lock down, to lock up, and while the wind is just kicking. It's a common occurrence even today. So you can imagine in that day, there's a, the, a wooden boat, right, propelled by, uh, you know, sails and oars. And rowing under these circumstances, I'm sure, is very hard in, in, a, in a major windstorm. Now remember, too, these are fishermen, right? It'd be a little bit different if I was on there. I'd be freaking out. They, they, they're going to get scared. I think, they're, I think they're a little concerned. Don't get me wrong. But nothing like I would be. Okay? These guys are fishermen. I know. I don't know this. It doesn't say. But I'm sure we're confident that this has happened before. Maybe not as bad. But they're in the middle of the storm. It's, it's not uncommon in that, in that region. In verse 19, it says they're about three or four miles away. They're making some progress. Uh, the trip is about six miles, seven miles According to Matthew and Mark, it's around the fourth hour, which is 3 a.m. at 6 a.m. So although they have gone to some distance, it's been a long time. Now it's 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and they're working, and they're working, and they're working. Verse 19, they had rode three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Mark says that when Jesus was walking, he meant to pass by them. 
Okay, he meant to pass on. Not in the sense of waving. I, when I read that first, I'm thinking, <laughs> look at you guys crying. All right, I'll see you when you get there. His point was so that they would see him and invite him. He would turn, they would see him. Mark says they were walking on the water and, and they thought they saw this spiritual being, a ghost, and cried out. Okay, when, it, when the Bible says cried out, it means they screamed. Like it sounds like, oh yeah, I was just crying out. No, no, ah, you know, it was one of those. <laughs> crying out just sounds so like cool. Oh yeah, they were crying out. Oh, look, no, they were screaming. That's what it means. They were screaming. John says they were frightened. I mean, do you think? I mean, it's four o'clock in the morning. You can imagine. It's pitch black. The waves are pounding against the boat. Water is piling all over the place. It's blowing like crazy. You're holding on for your dear life, and some sort of person is walking toward you. And the word walking in, in, in original is just nonchalantly walking. So the very elements that is banging the boat, banging you, you're... you're being tossed to and fro, this person is walking right through it, not even touching him. <laughs> He's walking on top of it even. You know, you could just imagine this for a moment. You might need to change your clothes, I don't know, but that would be scary for me. So even though they thought it may be Casper the unfriendly ghost, Jesus' intention was to just show his disciples and that they would recognize him and, and ask him for help and increase their understanding of who he is, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. And they come into the boats. Now, some people claim, if you, if you do any research, there's a few people, not many, but there's a few, people that Jesus really didn't walk on the water. They were hovering, you saw the, where they were going, they were hovering the coast, and what they saw Jesus doing was walking along the coast, not along the water. Okay? Mark says they were in the midst of the sea. Not geographical, but they were pretty far from at least the coast. Matthew adds that Peter, at some point in this whole narrative, gets out of the boat, takes a few steps, and then sinks. That's a clue. You don't sink on the ground. but And cried out, save me. Right? I don't think it was much of a miracle then if, if Jesus is walking along the shore and Peter cries and falls down on the ground and cries out, help me, and Jesus picks him up from the ground. Like, oh, wow, that was great. I don't understand why they think that. I mean, earlier in Matthew, he commands the wind, he commands the seas, and they obey him like that. Jesus is walking on the water, right? A lot of people want to dismiss that, but that's exactly what's happened. It's effortless. So, so think about this again. Jesus tells them, no, no, he makes them get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake. Were they doing what the master told them to do? Absolutely. They're in the perfect will of the master and they're struggling along in a fierce storm. Now, if the disciples were dismissed by Jesus, Jesus said, listen, I want you to go to the other side and goes up to the mountain to pray and they just wait till him gets out. Like, he's gone. All right, park the boat. Let's go into town. Let's do what we want to do. They might have had some more fun. They might not have been caught. In fact, they wouldn't have been in the storm. Sometimes disobedience brings pleasure but it's short-lived. Sometimes disobedience brings storms in your life. Everybody say amen. All right. This time, obedience brought the storm. This time, obedience 
brought the storm. Just another reason why I hate the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus, all your troubles will go away. Come to Jesus, you have nothing to worry about physically, emotionally, psychologically. Everything will be absolutely perfect for you. No, sometimes come to Jesus means trouble. Sometimes doing exactly what it tells you to do comes trouble, comes storms. Sometimes we do it on our own. But sometimes we're in the perfect will of the master and we find ourselves in the middle of a storm, right? Jesus, <laughs> come to Jesus and we'll have problems we never thought we'd ever have. You're welcome. I know that's important to you today. Paul heard the call, come to Macedonia. And Paul's like, I need to obey the Lord. And he goes to Greece and then goes to jail. Hmm. In the midst of this sea, rough sea, the disciples' frustrating attempts to make headway along the sea, when there was a need of being rescued from danger, is the way in which they knew they of themselves were inadequate. Storms do that. In the midst of recognizing that they were alone and in trouble, there was nothing they could do to save themselves is when they realized they were in need of the sovereign intervention of Jesus. Storms do that. They're like, where is he now? Jesus sees their agony and struggles. He takes a stroll on top of the lake to be with them. Jesus just calmly comes to them, calmly walking on the water to rescue them and deliver them to safety. Family, once again, unequivocally, this points to the Passover and the Exodus where Moses, God's deliverer, delivered them from the tyranny of Egypt. The two stories, the feeding of the 5,000, this eating event and this controlling of water provides an excellent reflection of the Passover and the Exodus. God provided bread. They were wandering. God, through the power, Moses, through the power of God, parted the Red Sea so that Pharaoh's army would go through it and then would be crushed by it. But they alone, through the water, come to safety and were rescued. But here Jesus, the true and the better and the ultimate Moses, who has the authority within himself to walk on water and to rescue and deliver the frightened apostles. The Exodus symbolism is hard to miss. The Passover and the Exodus is hard to miss. Just like in the Exodus, this time of great need, and Jesus comes. They thought they were alone. They weren't alone. And they had to learn, as we have to learn, that Jesus was fully aware of their circumstances, and he would come to them, but it would be in his timing, not theirs. That's so hard. Jesus, I need you to show up now. He's in the mountain praying. You see the scene. He's seeking the face of heaven. They're on earth struggling. But then Jesus comes to them. His perfect timing. It's perfect timing. Jesus walks in the midst of the storm. And family, like the disciples, when you're in your storm, you are not alone. You are not alone. But sometimes we have to admit in the storm, we are frightened and it shows us what we're clinging to, what we're running to, what we're finding comfort in. Jesus will not share his glory with anyone. He alone is sufficient and that's what he's trying to teach us. Number three, the solution. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. You know, we sing a song, and we've been singing it for years, and they've been singing it for years, an old song, Amazing Grace. In the stanza, this is what it says. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace relieved, my fears relieved. Grace teaches my heart to fear. You ever think about that, you're singing? And fear, and grace relieves my fear. So grace teaches me, and grace relieves. We see that kind of here, don't we? The absence of Jesus generates their fears, and when they first see him in his presence, rages their fear, surges their fears. But then Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid, and that calms their fears. You see that? Although they were unsure about who that was walking on the water, the Bible makes it clear that there is a mark of dread and fear in the expectation of death when encountering God. Isaiah 6, Exodus 3, Revelation 1, throughout the history of God's people, dealing with God's people, his presence would strike fear. When, when this unmediated glory, this, this, this majesty, this holiness that's unmediated shows itself in human frailty, in human sin, it, it just grinds us to dust. But when you hear the reassuring words of grace, it is I do not be afraid, that's what you want to hear. That calms our fears. It is I. Do not be afraid. When God shows up, we want to hear it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus calms their fears by identifying himself. His very presence brings them peace. Think for a moment. Two chapters earlier, Jesus is, Jesus is walking along. A man comes to him and says, my son is sick. He's miles away. Remember? And Jesus says, your son is healed. And immediately, immediately, the fever leaves the boy, right? Jesus, up in the mountain, could have certainly have said, wind be still. He didn't need to be there. But he shows up, and his presence brings them peace. His presence brings him peace. Family, if you do not, if I do not, have the word of God hidden in my heart, If I do not, if you do not have the word hidden in my heart, God's word, have my mind saturated with the truth of the gospel, you will not have your fears calmed by his voice and the presence of Jesus. I've heard stories and stories and testimonies over testimonies. Many of you can, I'm sure, give your own testimony. How when the storms came, the phone call came, the information came, something came, the Holy Spirit took the word of God, applied it to your heart, and this overwhelming sense and presence of Jesus filled your soul. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Jesus himself said, and we'll get to in John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into truth. He will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then he says, He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. Jesus says that when the Spirit comes, he will bring glory to me. Not glory to the the one who wants all your money. Not the one that does all the gifts and signs. He will bring glory to Jesus. Then he says, for he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. It's about Jesus. 
And in the midst of the storm, maybe you find yourself in a storm today. Everything's going against you, your work, your school, your personal life. Everything is falling apart. You feel as if you're on your own. You feel that God is not there. Jesus' absence is absent. But here's the thing. He's been watching you. He loves you. You've been rowing and rowing and rowing on your own. You're getting nowhere. He knows that you're exhausted. You're trying to do things on your own. You're trying to keep your head above water. And here's the deal. Man, as long as we keep rowing and rowing, rowing on our own, our own strength, trying to make it to land on our own, trying to overcome the waves on our own, being all-sufficient in ourself, we miss the all-satisfying presence of Christ. He will not share his glory with another. He will not share his glory with another. The story in this Bible is here for us, wherever you are, to hear the voice of Christ. It is I, do not be afraid. Come into the boat. Lord, come into the boat. Take my life. God's providence in your life, God's storm in your life is to get you to the place of surrender to him. God's providence means that nothing in your life is apart from his sovereign, loving hand. He is there. William Cowper, he's an 18th century poet, English poet, writes hymns and stuff, battled mental illness all his life, uh, very deep and dark depression, tried to commit suicide several times, never succeeded. The Lord took him home in, 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 in a natural way. He wrote this in a hymn. Listen. God is someone struggling all his life, waters all his life, deep all his life. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break blessing on your head. End quote. That's so true. Now, look at our last verse here. Look at Jesus' words. He says, it is I. Underline that, it is I. Ego am I. Some people, a lot of people have a lot of debate on what that means. It's a way of just introducing yourself in the Greek. But it's also very significant because it is the same word used, I am, that we find in the gospel according to John. I am the bread of life. We will see I am the door. I am the light. Before Abraham was, I am. It points back to what? Back to Moses again. Moses meets God in the burning bush in Exodus 3. He's like, come on here, young man. Take off your shoes. Who are you? God said to Moses from the burning bush, I am who I am. He said, tell this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. I am the self-existent one, the one who never changes, the one who's independent of everything and everyone, the one who is and will always be unchangeable, forever eternal, I am. There's no doubt of whether or not Jesus used this term for himself when he says before Abraham was, I am, or I am the light. Theologians debate whether or not he means it here. Does that make sense? Whether he means it here. Okay, there's different opinions. Let me give you mine, for whatever it's worth. Probably nothing, but I'll give it to you anyway. Jesus is walking on the water. Supernatural. Moses is seeing a bush not burn up. 
Supernatural. Moses goes toward the bush, and the Lord's like, don't come near because you're not going to make it. Take your shoes off. Jesus comes walking on the water, and they're like, oh, my word, we're toast. God tells Moses, I am, and Jesus says to them, I am. I don't know. I think there's a lot there. I think it connects, again, the Exodus and Passover. Psalm 77, Asaph, he's crying out. He's in a troubled spirit. He's, he's struggling. He's in, his storm, he's in his storm in Psalm 77, and he's looking for answers. Guess where he goes? He, he goes to the reflection of Exodus. Psalm 77, 16, he says, When the waters saw you, when the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your ways, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footsteps were unseen. He comes, his presence, and he calms them down. I am. How many, I, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but I think very well that Jesus was referring to, I'm in charge as God controls the winds and the waves and the sea, I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. What is the lesson? Just what we've been saying. The disciples came to know Jesus' person in a way that they have never would have known if not for the storm. Jesus sends storms to grow and to trust in who he is and to learn more that he is the mighty God. He is the I am. He is the one who's able to exceedingly do abundantly Above all that we ask or think, he is there for you. He's not against you. He is the great I am. Now, the last part of verse 21, immediately the boat was, I need to just touch on this and then we'll close. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Jesus steps in the boat, it is I, do not be afraid. The, Matthew uh, and uh, Mark say the wind completely ceased and then they were at the shore. Some people think that was a miracle. In other words, Jesus got in the boat, and all of a sudden, boom, they're there. Pretty cool. Right? They just, like, turn around. The wind stopped, and they look around, and they were at the shore. And Jesus miraculously took them there. I'm not really sure that is the case. That's what John wants us to learn. Maybe it's just a way to say, look, the seas were calm. It was, a, it was easy to get to the shore. Our trip, which was going to be longer than we thought, we got there right away. This week I was reading... This is what Kent Hughes says. I like what Kent Hughes... I'm going to share it with you. Kent Hughes knows that in... in um, and I think the gospel according to Mark, after the wind died down, Jesus says, it is, I am, all that. They worship Jesus, just as they worshiped him. Okay, you need to know that when I read this. So there's wind dying down, Jesus shows himself, the wind dies down, and they worship Jesus, then they get to land. This is what Kent Hughes says. The time we spend with the love of our life, the time we spend with the love of our life flies by. I think the disciples were so caught up in the worshiping of Jesus that time ceased for them and suddenly they found themselves on the shore. How wonderful, he says, to be so preoccupied with our wonderful Savior. I like that. It was just, it was just about getting on glory, like, oh my, I can't believe what's going on. Next thing you know, boom, they're at the shore. Now, whether you think it's a miracle or not, you could talk about it in your, in your community groups this, this week. So let me wrap it up. Let me tie this together. I'll give you two more minutes of your time. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with something that is life-sustainable, bread. Remember we said, bread is the staple diet. Without bread, you die. You're hungry, you have no bread, you die. 
God tells Moses that he will send bread from heaven while they're in the wilderness being delivered in their great escape from Egypt. It will sustain them so that they won't die. You know what else will kill you? A raging sea. In fact, John Reader's know the Bible, and the Bible a lot of times talks about the sea as chaos and that God alone is the one that controls it. Jesus comes to them on the sea and not only rescues them, but gives them his presence. And that's what calms them. So unless you have bread, uh, unless you have someone who could command the water to be still and to walk on the water, you will perish. Do you see what we're saying? You see, I believe what John is trying to show us in the feeding just pops up in this narrative. Jesus says, I'm the bread, I feed everybody. Then all of a sudden he explains it in verse 22 and following. And in between, he has this walking on water. Feeding, explanation of feeding, and then boom, walking on water. Where's the connection? Here's the connection. I did a miracle for you on the mountain. I fed thousands of people with 12 baskets left over for each one of you. I revealed to you on that mountain that it is me. I am the bread. I don't just make bread. I am the bread. I am the one who's satisfied. I'm your personal bread. My presence saved the day. And now I've done another miracle on the water. I've shown you that in the darkness of your life, in the storms of your life, I will let nothing come in between me, my love for you, and you. Nothing. I will walk on water. I will be with you. And when you invite me into your boat, there is gladness. And we arrive where we need to go. Moses prayed, parted the sea. Jesus comes walking, riding the storms, walking on the water. It's pointing to the presence of Christ. It's about the glory of Jesus, his all-satisfying presence. So whether the story is about, you know, being rescued from the panic of hunger by making bread or rescuing you and I from the storm by walking on the water, the point is the same. Jesus is enough. I don't just give bread, I am bread. I'm the mighty one. So that when I step into the world, when I step into your storm, when I step into what's going on, my presence is all you need. You know, the book of Exodus opens with chaos and slavery and fear and storms and ends with redemption, salvation, glory, Shekinah glory. The presence of God comes down. He is their provision. He is their protection. God is enough and delivers them and his presence at the end of Exodus says, I am your God. Now Jesus, the ultimate bread, the ultimate rescuer from sin, death, and hell. God provided in the wilderness, escaped from Egypt, and Jesus now is enough. Family, the greatest need above all your needs is for Jesus himself to come to you. Many people come to Christ, they want to be happy, they want to add things to their life. They want, to, they want a better family, they want a better kids, they want better this and better that, financial problems. Just come, and they're coming to Jesus because he becomes useful to them, not beautiful to them. But when the presence of Christ is enough, when he is our sustenance, when he is our all-satisfying one, he will bring an eternal appetite to his fulfillment. Jesus is enough. He was enough in the wilderness. He's enough on the sea. 
going through the storms of life, yes, Jesus will provide. Yes, Jesus will be with you. If you need physical things and you pray, God, he'll do all that. He cares about you. He cares about the storms. He cares about your food. He cares. But what he cares ultimately and much more is where you will end up in eternity. Is he enough? Is he enough? Cling to him as our satisfying Savior and our sustenance, that that will bring him glory. Romans 8, and we close. Listen to this verse in light of everything we just said. Just listen. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecution? Shall famine? Nakedness, danger, a sword? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall those things? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor sea, nor wilderness, height, nor death, anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the midst of all that, nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of Christ that will satisfy us. He alone satisfies. He is our sustenance, not stuff. What we need most of all is the presence of Jesus. Father, Father, we thank you for the bread of life. Father, each one of us, you know where we are. We know where we are at as far as circumstances, difficulties, and trials. But most importantly, you know where our appetites are. And Father, may we pray for each one of us that we would not run to things that will never satisfy, but we will run to you, the all-satisfying God. That, Lord, we would give you glory and embrace and love and treasure Jesus Christ, who went to the cross in the midst of brokenness, and the storm of judgment was poured out on him so that we can have peace and reconciliation with you. Father, may that be of the utmost importance and reality of our life. Fill us, Father, we pray, with the all-satisfying Christ for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.